people of God, like we have done since our Lord was resurrected, have gathered themselves together on the first day of the week to remember that we do not serve a dead God or a dead Jesus or a dead Messiah or a dead prophet. We serve the risen King. And so that's why we're here today. If you're online, turn with me. If you're here, turn with me to John 12. If you're a guest with us or if you're watching online and just, just getting in, we're, we're working through the Gospel of John. I don't pick and choose what to preach. I, I pick a book of the Bible and we preach it all. And so we're working through John. We've found ourselves in slow motion now in the Gospel of John as he has turned the corner and is now facing the cross. And everything that happens between John 12 and the end of the Gospel is within one week of the cross. It is as if when Jesus, everything he's doing and everything he's saying, the cross is there. He can see it. The disciples can't see it. And so stand with me as we, as we remember. Just going to get us started. We're going to be looking down to verse 36 today. I want you to see Jesus entering Jerusalem. John 12, verse 12. This is God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. It's God's word. Let's pray. Lord, yet if we had a week, a month, a year, we could look at this passage and would never exhaust the truth that's there. And so God, teach us what you want us to see, to know, and to live Oh God, as I am reminded every week in the Gospel of John, it is dangerous to have this knowledge of you and do nothing with it. So God, make us warriors for you. That humble ourselves before your mighty hand so that we might be used. We need you, Lord, even to understand. The disciples were there. They did not understand. There are people here in this town that say they know you, but they are not living for you. Oh, God, bring this town, bring us to repentance that we might be used. Teach us about you today. Because you are all that we need and you are all that we have. Fill us and use us, Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the hour has come to reveal the king, to ransom the king's people, and then for those people to follow him. Those are three that are essential. Truly, you do not have a Christian 
If you do not have someone who does not understand, has seen the king, who has been ransomed by the king, and who follows the king. Miss any of those, you just have religion. But you don't have a Christian. Our king is not your typical king. Because when you think of a king, we don't live in a king. We live in a republic. But make no mistake, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as king. He's sitting as king. He is the king. He's the king of his people. Amen. He's not a typical king. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not barking decrees in obscurity. I'll tell you a story. A pastoral counseling book written by Timothy Lane. He gives this story of a single lady that's hired by a big company, but she's never met her boss. She, she goes by her boss's office, and she sees his office. She sees his name on the plaque. And beside there, there's this, there's this board and it has these list of rules, these, these expectations from the boss. If you're going to work here, this is going to be my expectation of you. And she looks at that and says, man, he's cold. Maybe she even thinks he's tyrannical. But one day, you see, she meets him. She's a single lady. He just happens to be single himself. So now she begins to get to know him. Matter of fact, they do more than just introduce themselves. They become acquainted and friends and eventually gets married. Let me ask you the question. How does she see the rules now? Makes a difference, doesn't it? To follow the king, you must know the king. To know this king is to delight to follow this king. And if you don't have both, you do not have a believer. This king is a different kind of king. He is a sovereign king, but yet he's a personal king. He takes rebels and makes them children. This is our king. Our king's going to win a victory, but he's going to do it in a very unexpected way. Our main idea, Jesus' victory will come through death, providing eternal life and teaching his disciples how to gain by losing. Jesus' victory comes through humility. So what we see in this passage we just got through reading, 12 to 19. He comes, he comes in, in humility, but he comes fulfilling Scripture as he comes. The Bible is full in the New Testament of as it is written, as it is written. And when we hear that, we know they're referring to the Old Testament. So Jesus is entering, you see that in verse 12, he's entering Jerusalem. This is Passion Week. The Passover is coming. Remember, we talked about the Passover. Jesus is slain on the Passover. The Passover lambs were slain on the Passover, reminding the Jewish people that they were delivered through sacrifice. Josephus, a Jewish historian, counted, estimated in one Passover that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem during the Passover. Now, I don't know if he could count the heads, but the point is there's a lot of people there. Shoulder to shoulder, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, one pastor estimated most likely in this one area they could have been as much as a quarter of a million people watching Jesus come into Jerusalem. This was no small event. And so what was happening here, it, you have to look at the different parallel accounts. We're looking at John. You can look at Matthew. You can look at Luke. They were not just laying down palm branches as we see. They were also cast, taking their cloaks off, the outer garment that was part of that culture, and they were laying them down on the ground. They were declaring. So look at verse 13, John 12. It said, They took branches of palm trees 
and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what's up with the palm branches and the cloaks and this Hosanna? Well, what this is is simply a prayer. A declaration, you could say even a cry. They're, they're really praying the scripture here as they do that. Psalms 118 helps us understand what Hosanna means. Psalms 118 in verse 25 says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see, Hosanna means save us, Lord. Our Lord, our King. They're, they're praying this, they're declaring this to the one riding in. So what's up with the, the coats? Why did they put their garment on the ground? Well, you see, that's a symbolic gesture of putting yourself under the feet of the King. So when you put your, they put their, palm, they put their cloaks down and, he, and the King walks over it. They're saying, you are king. We put ourselves under your authority. See, that was their expectation. But that's what they were declaring. The the palm branches, you see, are symbolic if if you knew the history. You see, there was a time a couple hundred years before Jesus that when the Maccabees pushed back a rebellion, you remember it was the abomination that left the temple desolate. When, When one came in and offered a sacrifice in the temple and left it desolate, the Maccabees led a revolt and pushed them back. And when one of the brothers came in, they gave him what would be equivalent to a ticker tape parade. That's what this is about. And they, they took off palm branches and they put, that's what they're doing. They're remembering, but you see, they're also revealing, they have an expectation of Jesus that will not be fulfilled. An expectation that he was coming as the king. But you see, Jesus was coming not just to destroy Rome, but to defeat sin. Zechariah 9 verse 9 teaches us something. You see, 500 years before Christ came, a prophet said there's coming a king. He's coming in a particular way. So Zechariah 9, 9, let's listen to it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we remember here as we look at this, that 500 years before Christ, a prophet said, your king's coming, but he's not coming on a white horse. This is not going to be a Disney movie, right? It's going to be a bloody cross. It's not going to be tall, dark, and handsome coming in on a white steed. He comes in. On a a foal of a donkey. One that had never been ridden. It's coming. You see, there's other kings that have come with donkeys. And when they come on a donkey like this, it's symbolic of peace. He's coming. He's not coming to conquer Rome. It's not. That's what they want. doesn't matter. It's not what the Father said. I'm not coming to conquer Rome. I'm coming to deal with your sin. This is a spiritual salvation from sin's tyranny. 
Look at verse 16. Disciples don't get it. They don't understand. They, they haven't grasped the nature of, of Christ, not only His nature, His person, but even His work. They, they don't understand His significance yet. They trust Him. They don't see it. So when He comes in, there's three groups. He's walking into the city. There's three groups. There's people that have been there. They witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. They're still talking about it. Remember, Bethany's only two miles from Jerusalem. The word's there. Matter of fact, everywhere Jesus has been for the last three years, he has banished the demonic and healed the sick. Amen. Right? Everywhere he went. People in Jerusalem were hearing about it. So you had two groups of people. You, you have those who saw Lazarus and his disciples. Remember, it wasn't just 12. He had a greater following. They were coming and they were excited. They were declaring, he's here, he's coming. And then there were people in Jerusalem that were saying, what's up with this talk of this dude who raises people from the dead? Who's, what's up with this guy who seemed like the devil scared of him? And so they came out to curious. Here's another group of people. We've been talking about them, hadn't we? The religious elite. Remember, they had already said, we're going to kill him. Matter of fact, we're going to kill him and Lazarus. They were there. They were the ones that said, look, the whole world's going after him. We've got to get rid of this dude quick. He's making a mess of our sham of religion that they called religion. So Jesus is coming for victory into Jerusalem. But his victory will come through death. That's what we see in verses 20 to 30. We have this interesting interchange where these Greeks come up. Look at verse 20. Now among... Those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. Some of these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip, look how he does this. This is just funny. Philip went to Aunt, told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So what's going on there? Well, you have to sort of read the other parallel accounts. Most people believe when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, between Jesus coming into Jerusalem and between these Greeks wanting to see him was the second cleansing of the temple. So just imagine, and this right here is another sermon. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people saying, he's going he's to conquer Rome. You would say this, Jesus is going to come in, the first place he's going to go is to the White House. You know where Jesus went? He went to church. And he cleansed the temple. Y'all have made us, this is a house of prayer, a house of trade. He cleansed it. It's no wonder why the Greek, these Greek people want to say, could we ask you some questions? The weird thing is, we're not really told whether they spoke to the Greek folks or not. We really don't know. Jesus used this as a teaching opportunity, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has coming for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the point of this section. The hour has come. You see, up to this point, the hour was future. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8. The hour future, the hour future. Now he says the hour's here. It's here. It's come. Jesus' victory will come through death. Look at verses 24. Look, listen to this analogy. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It goes right into application. You see that? We're going to come back to this. Whoever 
loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, why did he use this analogy of this seed going into the ground and it must die? Well, verse 33 puts all this together and said he was teaching us what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus, our kingly Messiah, is going to die. His death will bring life. This is good news, but good news is often hard news. This has been proclaimed. Matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah Isaiah 52, the problem you see even within the Jewish community to this day is they look for Isaiah 52, but they fail to understand that Isaiah 53 comes after. So look at with me at Isaiah 52. Let's just grab a couple of verses just so you can see the flavor of this whole chapter. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now listen to, what he's, listen to how he's describing his salvation. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. And what is, he, what is this salvation bringing? Peace, happiness, and salvation. Verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so the, the people, as Jesus come in, says Isaiah 52 is happening. He's coming and he's going to roll up his sleeves. He's going to show the nations, this Rome, these people oppressing us. He's going to show them his strength. He's going to conquer them. He's going to make our life easy and good. That they neglected to read Isaiah 53. How, you see, how will he save They expected him to get rid of Rome, to be a political savior. Instead, let's just read a couple verses. Isaiah 53, verse 4. This is what our Savior will do. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, this is how he will save It's good news. The Savior has finally come. The hour is here. He will save His people, but He will do it through death. And Jesus immediately in this section goes into the application of the followers of Christ's life. Those disciples that are hollering, hollering, Hosanna, I'm talking to you. You see, how Jesus lived in His hour is how you must live in yours. And listen, brothers and sisters, we will always, every one of us will have an hour. An hour of trial. An hour of suffering. An hour of injustice. That's what's happening here. He didn't do anything wrong, brothers and sisters. 
It was his hour. And listen, this is comforting. This was to me the most comforting part of the passage. Jesus is troubled. Good news. Look at good news for us today. Hold on. Look at verse 27. Jesus. And let me just jump ahead right here. Remember, I'll jump ahead in my sermon. I just want you to see this before I read this. 1 John 3 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. So what I'm about to read to you is not sin, because it happened to Jesus. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Listen. There's your life in a nutshell when the hour comes. Listen, this is comforting. Jesus is having an inner conflict. Do you know that you can have both? Inner conflict, inner war, and perfect peace. You can have both. How do you do that? Through resolution to obey the Father, not please man. It's the only way it comes. That's what's happening here. But his soul is troubled. You remember that's the same word that when he looked around at all the unbelief in Lazarus' tomb. He was troubled. He was agitated. This word could even mean horrified. Hebrews 12. Do you remember what it says? We look to the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before us endured the cross despising the shame. That's the picture with his soul being troubled. He endured it. He despised the shame. Make no mistake. Right now, he's seated on the right hand of the throne of God. This is truth, brothers and sisters. This is truth that not only accomplishes your salvation, but informs how then shall we live. But let us not mistake. Let us not miss today the inward conflict of doing what the Father tells us to do. For Jesus struggled with it, and so will you. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says this. His sorrow and soul was purposeful. Because out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He went through everything that you go through in your life. He understands it. He has sympathy for it. And at this moment, look at verse 28. At this moment, when Jesus was experiencing this inward conflict, his father affirms him. You are doing exactly what I have told you to do. He could not, he said this three times audibly in Jesus' life. Important parenting point. His father affirms him in the midst of his inward conflict of his soul. Though he is resolved to do what his father's will. He is struggling with the horrors of the cross. And what it meant. You see there was not one point in Jesus' life. That he was ever without his father. His father was always with him. For him. Speaking to him. He only prayed out loud for the benefit of his disciples. He was always in communion with his father. He never stepped outside of his will. He never went his own way. That's why he is your and my perfect sacrifice. Jesus' victory will come through death 
Jesus' victory would bring honor to his Father and life to his people. Jesus' victory honors his Father. I want you to see this because at the end, you, you come into this. Jesus had to die to make this possible, but you need to understand this in his life. Look at, look at verse 23 of chapter 12. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we see that the, the Father is going to honor the Son. Son's going to obey. The Father's going to honor Him. The Father desires to honor the Son. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Here's the Father. Then a voice came from seven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So you see the Son determined, no matter what it cost Him, to bring honor to His Father. The Father determined to bring honor to the Son. Brothers and sisters, this is the key to any healthy relationship. We must both, to have a healthy relationship of any kind, married or not, must be determined to do this. This is the way perfect relationships work. So this, is, this is our standard for a perfect relationship. A determined to bring honor to each other, no matter what it costs. So, he was determined to glorify Christ. Christ was determined to glorify. This is the seedbed of our victory. What will this victory look like? Well, he tells us, verse 31, every single one of these is like another sermon. Like I said, you keep preaching this over and over again and never, never exhaust it. Notice in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Two obvious things in this verse. <laughs> Victory will look like judgment. And judgment can be both positive or negative, determining what you do with Jesus. That's the question. What are we going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Allah? I don't have to do nothing with Him. He didn't resurrect from the dead. What are you going to do with Jesus because He did? Judgment is what come with it. Do you remember Jesus, um, Paul in Acts 17? Acts 17, Paul had engaged these pagan, these pagan philosophers. You remember? He engaged them and he presented the gospel. Remember, he started at creation. He worked his way all the way through. And in verse 30 of Acts 17, he says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And if we get our story right, the people he first calls to repent is the church. Cleanse the temple. It's, I am here. Judgment is here. When he goes to the cross, you will always have to deal with Jesus. Because he is the one that went to the cross. And he is the one that resurrected from the dead. Victory looks like judgment. It also looks, praise the Lord, like the defeat of Satan. That's what he says, isn't it? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He says in chapter 16, he says the ruler of this world will be judged. Right? Ties in with the first point. Judgment has happened. Oh, I wrestled with this, wanting to, wanting to camp here. Let me just read another passage, and I've got to keep moving. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Why is that true? Because every single person who repents and puts their faith in God is indwelled with God. The Holy Spirit. That's why we can conquer Satan. That's why addiction does not have the last word in your life. Because he died to set us free. To indwell us with the very God of the universe that has defeated the God of this world. But brothers and sisters, this is the clear truth. Look at verses 32 and 33. Victory is going to look like crucifixion. It's not going to be glorious. Like I said, there's no white horse. It's a cross. It looks like crucifixion. It's what he, Jesus is saying. Remember, this hasn't happened yet. So if someone who says, Jesus just did all these things to fulfill prophecy on his own, how exactly can you put your own self on a cross? Yet he says it's coming. Verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Victory will look like a cross. This cross is what will bring salvation. You could say it this way. His desire is first and foremost to honor and to obey his father. The results of that is your salvation. It forms our life. Who is a sinner? Who is in the center of your life? It's not you. It's not your ministry. It's not your spouse. It's God. It's God. He brings salvation through obedience to his Father. Obedience to his Father brings light to his people. That's what we're seeing in verse 34 and 36. As soon as he said the Son of Man will be lifted up. Remember we've talked about the Son of Man. All connected to the Old Testament and to Daniel. They start saying, who's, this, who's the Son of Man? Right? Where is he? They still don't see it. Love that Jesus just keeps on preaching. You remember our story. Our story led in Genesis to a man named Abraham. He was the man who God said, through your seed, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Isaiah chapter 42 says this seed will be a king. And he will bring light to the nations. See, too often, we at the church think missions is a day of the week we come and do something. It's a, it's a trip we go to. Something that me and Micah plan on the calendar for October. And try to get all you to sign up to go on it. And those things are good. We send money to missionaries through, through the North American and Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon. And those are good. But brothers and sisters, John is concerned about how we are living life. Your life now. You see, for your life now. Missions is an adjective. It describes the content of your life. It describes what you do with what you have. What you do with what you have left. Christian looks at not, I've got $60,000 in the bank. Let me go buy a new car. A missional living says, maybe I need to buy a used car because the gospel needs to go out. You see, that's what it means. 
That's what John says. You're saved. My son died. Not only that you can go to heaven one day, but that you can live for me today. What John is concerned with, that's why he is saying what he's saying. You see, cross-cultural missions, worldwide missions, are an overflow of your daily mission. They're an overflow. Your daily mission is in the context of your neighborhoods, your offices, your workplaces. You're absolutely miserably hard to stay in right relationship with people you live with mission. <laughs> That's hard. It's hard. But our big missions, our reaching to people who have not yet heard the gospel. There are people who have no Bibles. They don't know who Jesus is. That is an overflow of what we are doing today here. It won't, in other words, it won't happen, and if it does, it becomes an event. Missions is an overflow of who our Lord is and what He did and our response to it. Jesus says, verse 35, the light. You see, the disciples don't know He's about to die. They're going to be peeling Him off the cross and putting Him in a grave in only a few days. Jesus says, then light is among you for only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who, who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This word believe is not believe it, put it in your pocket, and see you when you get to heaven. This is a believe and keep on believing. Trust and keep on trusting. Follow and keep on following. That's what he's saying. My disciples, you need to believe and keep on believing me. It is not going to get easier for you to believe. It's just as true the disciples who went on to give their lives for him as it is for you today. Do you trust him? Dead religion will not get you there. Man-centered man religion will not get you there. Our Christianity is not about what we must do so we might get something. That is man-centered religion. Christ has done everything. I have, I have put my trust in Him. My eternal destiny is settled. What am I going to do with what I have left? That's the issue. I am safe. God has given me a life to live. How will we then live? So what? I always like to ask this question. You haven't preached a message unless you command a response. That's why we take communion every week. <laughs> so that we get to respond to this wonderful message. Will we follow Christ wherever He leads us to go? It could lead you to Nigeria. He could lead you to King's Mountain. He could lead us to go and wonder, where did all them people living in tents in Charlotte go to? Now they have to leave. Went out there yesterday morning to get a guy started on a job and it was cold. I thought about Marvin out there, 80 years old, sleeping outside. Well, he leads us wherever we go, tells us to go. Well, we follow him. 
This is what he's getting at with his disciples in verses 25 and 26. It's to live like dying is gain. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. You can't keep it. To keep it, you must lose it. In other words, to keep it, you must entrust it to someone who is sovereign, wise, and good. That is, brothers and sisters, God alone. God alone. You see, the place of service. What it says, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, listen, this is bringing us into this honor equation. You listening? You listening? Somebody say yes. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, the place of service is this life. This is our opportunity. This is our place to honor the Father. Christ gave us that example. Everything he did, everything he said, even our own salvation was about honoring his Father. This life, your life, my life, no matter where you are in life today, your purpose is to please God. Other people are a distant second. And too many of us, even as Christians, are so miserable in our Christian life because we spend so much time pleasing man and not enough time figuring out how to please God. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, you must ha just have to please God and go to sleep and rest in Him. Please God. This is hard. I know it's easy to say. Hard to live. I, what am I going to lose? Jesus Christ promises you a relationship with Him in eternal life. Following Him costs you everything. You have not weighed the cost unless you have laid it down to Him. He's sovereign. He's good. In other words, today, for our application, we must, to apply this text, empty myself of my expectations of others to please me. We are so miserable because we are looking to people with skin on saying they're responsible to please me and if they don't do it, I'm going to make their life hell or I'm going to live in hell. Christ did not die for us to live under the expectations of someone else to please you, only Him. So what we need to do is empty ourselves of our expectations. That's why it's so hard. And concentrate more on pleasing my God and less on pleasing others. This is hard because this involves our family. It's hard because we've got to go to work every day and see those same people, right? It's, it's them same people that we see all the time is the hard application, isn't it? That's why you can go on a mission trip and have a good time because you're going to leave them people in about seven days. You're not going to see them again. You've got to go home with those people that you wake up every, every day with, that you go to school every day with, that you go to work every day with, that this is the people that I must stop Expecting my spouse to make me happy when the only one that can make me happy is my Jesus. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If you're married long, you're going to go, 
used to hunt way back in the day, you're going to go what do I would call a thicket. You ever been hunting? Go through a thicket. You're walking along, mind your own business. Not too bad. We got some pines in here, and it's pretty clear. And then all, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you get in the midst of a briar patch. And by the time you spin around two or three times and start yanking and get mad, you know, you, you're, about, you're about 50 foot in. And you can't go back, and you can't go forward. You ever been there? Sort of a picture of life sometimes. You're going to get stuck. Don't know what to do. Don't want to stay here. <laughs> don't want to go backwards. And I don't know how to go forward. Two simple steps. And listen, if you were sitting in front of me today, one-on-one, I'd say the same thing. Seek to please God, not your spouse. Seek to please Him, not your spouse. He is first, not your spouse. I don't care how good that spouse is. I don't care how good your friend is. Seek to please God, not your spouse. Here's number two. Seek to speak and act in a way that honors your spouse, expecting nothing in return. Seek to act and speak in a way that honors them, expecting nothing in return. I think our Lord taught us something about that. You see, here's what I can promise you. If both people are willing to do that, the relationship will improve. Forgiveness and reconciliation will come. Because when both people seek to honor God and not themselves, to seek Him first and not you, they begin to show you grace and you mercy, not expecting anything in return. That is the very heart of a healthy relationship. Because that's the heart of God. It is what it means for God to be in relationship with each other. Here's the promise. Verse 26. The Father will honor that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Remember. In this life. Don't expect the white horse. Expect the donkey. The white horse is coming. Amen. The white horse is coming. When Jesus returns. So. I want to end here. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians. I wasn't going to use this, but I just saw something here that I've never really seen before. And, uh, and it's probably because I always read Galatians 2, beginning at verse 20. <laughs> and, uh, which means I normally read Galatians 2 out of context. That's probably what that means. Galatians 2, I just want you to see, more than anything, I want you to see verse 17. It's, it's what, I've just missed it. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Here's the question. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. It is what called me was, is Christ a servant of sin? See, that word servant is the word we get the word deacon. And I had this picture of sin sitting at your table you say, we know this. Who are you going to invite to sit at your table? Just imagine this. Is sin sitting at my table? And then I'm expecting Christ to serve the mistake. Do 
Do I say, I have been justified by Christ. He has saved me. And yet I am letting sin sit at the table of my life and expecting Jesus to bless it. Here's, what, here's the promise that we can get from Scripture. Jesus will never serve sin. Jesus put on the apron all the time and served his people. But listen, he will not serve sin. So, the question today for us, is sin sitting at my table? Is it lying in my bed? No, you wouldn't, brothers and sisters. You, we go out and, and work with people all the time. They have done all kinds of things. They're sex offenders and, and everything else. But here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to take a pedophile and come into my house and say, listen, I don't have anywhere to sleep, so here's a sleeping bag. Just bunk up with my kids tonight. You're not going to do that. So why are you letting sin into your phones to sit in the table of your lives, to concentrate on them in our lives and meditate on that which Christ will never serve? Brothers and sisters, Christ is calling us to remember something today. And this we leave and close. He's calling us to remember this. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in my flesh, I'll live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so, brothers and sisters, our Lord is walking towards the cross today so that we might have life, so that we might not live for ourselves, or anyone else but for Him. And let us respond now, brothers and sisters, as we pray and we sing and we go to the tables and we give. Let us respond with our very lives. Lord, this is Your Word. And You promised us that it will never return void when it goes forth. And so now, Lord, we have declared it. Not as coming from ourselves, but it's coming from the very words of God. And so now, Lord, we trust you. We trust your spirit to bring these words to life. These seeds that were planted, Lord, bring them to life. So that we may see the fruits of it in our lives lived for your glory. This, brother, brothers and sisters, this, God, is how we change the world. And so, God, your people now long to worship you, to come to the tables, to remember this cross, to remember what it cost. And so, Lord, make yourself look good Comfort us, renew us, strengthen us as we remember the person and work of Jesus, as we respond and how we give and how we go. Be honored now as we stand to our feet to worship you. Amen.